Hello, this is Jack Buckley, and today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Susanna Vakis for uh, Snacks Fellows and Residence Audio Corner. Uh, Dr. Vakis is part of the UCLA Neuroanesthesia faculty, and she combines her time with clinical and research. And her research focuses on postoperative neurocognitive disorders. She was recently awarded NIH K23 Career Development Award. Hi, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here today. So today we're going to be discussing anesthesia for epilepsy surgery. So my first question for you, are there any special considerations for pre-anesthetic evaluations when you're taking care of patients who are undergoing uh, epilepsy surgery? So um, I believe that preoperative evaluation of epilepsy patients is the key for a successful outcome for these patients. I personally go over a checklist of queries that can be used to assure that issues that are relevant to anesthetic care are addressed. What is the seizure type and frequency? If the patient experienced any warning symptom? What are the circumstances that precipitate seizures? What are the ictal manifestations and post-ictal behaviors? What anti-epileptic drugs is the patient taking? Not to forget also if there is a history of adverse reaction to previously used anti-epileptic drugs. And if the seizures are part of a syndrome, and how might this syndrome also affects the anesthesia management? And once you get that history, what do you like to do with the management of the anti-epileptic drugs? So a plan for preoperative anti-epileptic drugs administration should always be made in consultation with the neurology and the surgery teams. And there are several factors you need to consider. Is, is there av availability of a parenteral formulation? And how are you going to bridge oral to IV formulations during the perioperative period. Also, it's important to know if their intraoperative analysis of the epileptic form activity will be performed, uh, if there is likelihood of intraoperative events that provoke seizures, and also know the seizure frequencies and characteristics. So Dr. Vakis, you mentioned intraoperative events that can provoke seizures. What would an example of this be? For example, in our center, when we do awake craniotomies, uh, we can use electrostimulation to identify language centers, and this can commonly precipitate seizures. And especially in patients that have withheld their anti-epileptic drugs, this could be a concern. Could you describe some of the potential side effects of anticonvulsant therapy that you generally are on the lookout for? So um, examples are, for example, patients that take that are taking topiramate and zonisamide. Uh, so preoperatively, you should be watching for bicarbonate levels that could be low. Uh, patients on oxycarbazepine could have low serum sodium. Rarely, there are evidence of serious toxicity such as bone marrow suppression, anemia thrombocytopenia and liver injury that might, re might require that the team reevaluate the timing of surgery and anesthesia. There are cases, but they're very controversial on patients that are administered with valparate uh, that have been associated with hemorrhagic complications. And so practice does vary among different centers. Do any of the anti-epileptic drugs have any interaction with the common anesthetic agents that we use? So definitely, there are interactions between the drugs that we use in anesthesia and the medications that are used to treat epilepsy. These interactions are mediated by enzyme induction, enzyme inhibition, and other mechanisms. And these are particularly accentuated when in, with the classic anti-epileptic drugs, such as phenytoin, phenobarbital, and carbamazepine. 
So you do have to pay special attention to when you are uh, administering to the patient narcotics, benzodiazepines, or neuromuscular blocking agents. Patients that are chronically treated with this enzyme-inducing antiepileptic drugs, they require larger and more frequent doses of neuromuscular blockers due to activation of the empathic enzymes. Also, attention to opioids requirements, such as fentanyl, because patients' um, requirements are most often increased. Is there any anticonvulsant or proconvulsant effects of our anesthetics? So... Many drugs that are used in anesthesia have both have proconvulsant or anticonvulsant effects, or even both. So the literature in this topic is extremely extensive and also ambiguous. So this ambiguity comes from a doubtful standard of what is considered a movement consistent with convulsive activity during anesthesia that is applied without the lack of EEG corroboration. The other reason for this ambiguity of results is that there is extrapolation of the observations from non-epileptic patients to patients with chronic intractable epilepsy and vice versa. In fact, different responses to anesthesia drugs are observed even among populations of patients with different types of epilepsy. So that's what makes it very interesting. Also, adding to this complexity, some drugs used in anesthesia that have the both proconvulsant and anticonvulsant effects, they, it's depending on the dosage used and also or the proconvulsant metabolites from the drugs. So for the are some of our common agents we use, such as propofol, uh, where does this fit in the spectrum of anticonvulsant or proconvulsant? So definitely propofol is one of the few drugs that I can almost definitively say that its action is mainly anticonvulsant. Propofol, if I have an intraoperative seizures to the, due to readily availability of propofol, it will def and I have to halt the seizure, it will definitely buy, be my drug of choice. Now let's discuss intraoperative electrocardiography and how you would manage the anesthesia for that. So I love uh, <laughs> anesthetizing for intraoperative electrocorticography. I think it's very interesting technique. So many drugs that are used during anesthesia care suppress the ictal electroencephalogram uh, abnormalities that are used to map cortical ep epileptogenic foci. So when brain mapping is to be performed to delineate the cortical seizure foci, the anesthesia te technique needs to be modified to minimize this possibility. So you can either do sedation or a general anesthesia. So when the anesthesia technique is sedation and brain mapping for the seizure foci is planned, benzodiazepines are usually not administered, even in the small doses typically used for anxiolysis. Sedative infusions of propofol can be administered, but you should consider suspending the infusion about 15 minutes prior to the electroencephalography is advisable. And then for continuous sedation during the mapping, most centers will choose between remifentanil or dexmedetomidine since suitable conditions for mapping seizure foci are reported with these medications. So when the anesthesia technique is chosen to be general anesthesia, you need to modify the technique as well. The best technique is definitely controversial and has not been systemically evaluated. At our institution, the practice has been to discontinue the administration of the potent inhalation agents 
And then you continue the anesthesia with a combination of nitrous oxide and remifentanil at high doses in advance of cortical ma mapping. We do inform uh, patients of an increased risk of recall during the period of mapping. And we try to explain the rationale for this modification of the anesthesia technique and also provide reassurance regarding the likelihood of the patient experiencing any discomfort. So let's assume you're planning on doing general anesthesia uh, for epilepsy surgery. How would you do that? So general anesthesia is administered for epilepsy surgery when awake intraoperative mapping is not indicated. In common with general anesthesia for other intracranial neurosurgical procedures, the goals of general anesthesia for epilepsy surgery are analgesia, amnesia, stable hemodynamics, optimal operating conditions, and rapid postoperative emergence from the effects of the anesthetics to allow for a prompt neurologic evaluation. So total intravenous anesthesia, balanced anesthesia, and inhalation anesthesia can all be used to achieve these goals. And you mentioned you do general anesthesia when intraoperative, uh, intraoperative functional brain mapping is not indicated. Let's assume it is indicated. How would you do that? So awake intraoperative mapping for delineation of the seizure foci and functional cortex um, presents challenges for the patient and for the anesthesia team. So a variety of anesthesia techniques have been successful for these procedures. can include from regional anesthesia alone, uh, regional anesthesia with conscious sedation, regional anesthesia with deep sedation, and regional anesthesia with an interrupted general anesthesia, which is the technique also known as a, a sleep awake asleep technique. Of note, the parts of the procedure that are the most uncomfortable include the injection of the local anesthetic, the bone drilling, the bone work, and when the surgeon is tractioning the dura. So you have to be aware these parts of the procedure because you know you anticipate that the patient will benefit from some degree of sedation during this this part. So the selection of which technique is varies by institution, varies by the anesthesia team, and depends also on patient factors, risk assessment. Whatever technique is selected, the goals are always to provide patient comfort, adequate ventilation, stable vital signs, immobility, and adequate conditions for the surgery and for the brain mapping. Are there any special considerations that you have when you're providing care for patients having vagal nerve stimulator placed? So, a vagal nerve stimulation is a treatment modality for the medical refractory epilepsy and requires general anesthesia care, always a general anesthesia for the placement of the stimulator device. So I would say the technique of anesthesia, there's that many considerations, but the team does need to be aware of the rare instance of severe bradycardia during the initial intraoperative device testing and potential post-operative complications, including unilateral vocal cord paralysis or lower facial muscle paralysis, hoarseness, neck hematoma, and airway compromise. Well, Dr. Vakis, thank you for taking the time uh, to give us this talk and provide your expertise. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Bogi. It was uh, very nice to be here with, uh, with all of you.